and welcome to Movie Ghoul Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week we have broken that rotation to bring you five episodes in one week. This final episode here, it's an around-the-world pick, is coming in your feed on Halloween evening, on All Hallows' Eve... Hello, my name is Brett Stewart, and joining me on this fine evening, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good! I have just slain an insect and am covered with the tiny spot of blood of my enemies. So I'm I'm ready for Halloween, it's perfect. There you go. So now this is this episode's coming out, we're recording ahead of time earlier in October, but this episode's coming out on halloween it's the last of the five movie go around or movie ghoul around episodes what what would you be doing right now as listeners are listening to this on on halloween eve what would i be doing uh typically on halloween i am sitting on the front porch of our the sort of triplex that i live in with a glass of wine and a giant (laughs) bowl of candy uh, that's kind of traditional. I mean, I live here in Salem, and it can get pretty nuts, and you can go and wander around downtown if you want on Halloween, and that's always fun and interesting, and you can count all the naughty variations of costumes. <laughs> uh, naughty nurse, naughty pirate, naughty doctor, not you know, the various things. Um, or the other way that most people tend to go is they sit on their porch to hand out candy and they drink with their, with their friends. And they, so there's a lot of drinking and giving candy to strange children. So, you know, all wholesome, super wholesome. (laughs) Very good. Very good. David Luzader is joining us as well. David, what can listeners expect you to be doing on Halloween Eve when this episode comes out? Uh, well, I will probably be going to the Alamo Draft House because they are showing Halloween, the original Ooh. one, in their uh. big theater. So I will be going to see that. Um, or crying into a tub of ice cream because I have discovered my first white beard hair. And oh, uh, it's all downhill from here. So. <laughs> It was a fun ride while it lasted. And you fully have absorbed that that discovery by the time October 31st comes around. No crying before uh, hopefully. then. Hopefully. <laughs> well, uh, very good. I, on, on October 31st for us, we're going to be walking Ray, our tiny chihuahua, around the block in her costume. Because kids love her. We don't have kids and we don't have a front door. So the best thing we can do is exploit our dog for pets. So she loves it. And I don't know what she's going to be this year. So we're going to have to follow up on that because last year she was a jockey. No, I guess the jockey sits on top of her. She was the horse, um, which was pretty darn cute. So this year I'm thinking maybe a donut. So stay posted. In any case, Eyes Without a Face is what we watched for an around the world pick. But before we get into it, next week's movie is You Did This To Us. It's the end of Movie Ghoul ghoul Round, so you're not going to have the opportunity to just vote for horror, though it very well might be a bad horror movie that tends to be a favorite on You Did This To Us weeks. And Future Me, because we have these votings ahead of time, is going to tell us what we are watching right now. It was a bad horror movie. It turns out that you all voted on Jennifer's body. It won fairly overwhelmingly. So I guess we're doing an impromptu extension of movie Ghoul Round into November. Again, Jennifer's body. And that's what we're going to be watching. And reminder. you guys. Oh, you guys. uh, If you didn't have the opportunity to vote on that, it's very easy to do so. Just head on over to mgrpodcast.com slash you did this to us. And you can go on over there and you can vote Uh, every five weeks. You're going to have the opportunity soon. By the time this episode comes out, we're also going to have a sign up on that page that alerts you when the polls are open. You'll actually get an email saying like, hey, it's time to vote, which I'm hoping will help folks because I know that it doesn't necessarily happen the week the episode comes out. So be sure to head on over there again, uh, mgrpodcast.com slash you did this to us. But this week, Eyes Without a Face. 
Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Alternately, you can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash moviegroundpodcast. I always post the polls as soon as they are available. Yes, definitely is there there as well and on our Twitter. So, Eyes Without a Face, or uh, as Nicole will now pronounce in French. <laughs> Les yeux sans visage. This is going to be an episode of me butchering things. Thank you very much. It came out in 1960 at his secluded home in the French countryside. An obsessed doctor attempts to radical plastic surgery to restore beauty to his daughter's disfigured face at a horrifying price. Nicole, this was your pick. I recently learned prior to us recording in the pre-show that you had not seen this before as well. So this was new to all three of us. So I'm very curious. Why did you pick this movie? Uh, it's one of those that was on my list of shame of, you know, classic films that I haven't yet gotten around to. Um, Eyes Without a Face has, it started out uh, with not so great a reputation. It was looked at as a little bit, uh, a little bit vulgar, a little bit uh, over the top, a little shocking for its time. Uh, but or I believe it was restored sometime in the 80s and people began to come around to it again. And it has since sort of been uh, ensconced into the horror pantheon as a classic and very influential movie of the genre, which I had not seen until this week. Very cool. And David, myself, had not seen it either. Correct, David? Well, you know, I had not seen it, but I'd seen the remake uh, face oh. off. Oh God. <laughs> the fact that I resisted making any comment about face off up until now shows my personal strength. And the funny thing right. is, that, is that I thought you were actually going to reference one of several actual kind of pseudo remakes in the sense that there was actually a Spanish director that was so influenced by this film that he made his own version uh, of the film. And there's been a couple variations throughout pop culture, people pulling things from this movie. Um, yes. A call face out. Oh, yeah. Called Face Off. That is true. Um, well, but, I mean, there were some direct ripoffs in the years immediately following uh, the release of this movie, but it's, you know, there were some less uh, direct films that it's influenced, like Halloween with the featureless white mask. Uh, Batman, the Tim Burton version, a uh, woman actually wears the identical mask in one scene. Face really? off. Yeah. And, um, the, and the very clear reference from Billy Idol. Which yes. Yes. That is exactly. yes. A song called. Um, he stated explicitly. Yes. That's what it's from. And then uh, Crimson Peak. Actually, I was reminded really? during the scene where. Well, when Christian goes through the room with all the dogs in the separate cages, it reminded me a lot of the scene of the girl uh, wandering through the room with the vats oh, yeah. on either I side. Totally see that. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. And then uh, a few years ago, there was an Almodovar movie called The Skin I Live In uh, that featured someone wearing a uh, very featureless mask for a good bit of the movie. And now John so, Carpenter has also come out and said that, you I'm know, I'm sure there are many more. Yeah. That, that John Carpenter says that, that this was likely his inspiration, even if it was somewhat subconsciously for making Mike Myers look the way he looks call back to the second episode of movie ghoul round. So let's dive right into our discussion topic questions. Uh, Christian, is that, is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so she is the daughter without a face. And like, what's most unnerving about her? Is it the mask she has to wear, her disfigured face, or her pristine face after, spoiler alert, she kind of gets a face for a while? <laughs> and uh, I have my answer, but Nicole, this was your discussion topic. Which one distresses you the most? I don't I actually kind of found the the flesh and blood face to be the most disturbing yes. really because yes, this it is. actress has very large eyes and a very narrow chin and the whole effect is just slightly too anime to be real almost. Um it's a little, you know, it's like elfin 
sort of. It's, yes. And it's just very odd. It's, you know, I mean, I'm sure she was, she's a, she's very lovely, but it's not proportions that I'm used to seeing on your average face. Yeah. I think the mask fell a, a little bit flat in terms of the horror because psychologically uh, for people out there, masks mess with our brains because we can't read the expression on them. Um, but the, Kind of the problem with that is that it fit her expression of melancholy and sadness really well. Uh, <laughs> yes, that, that, you know she didn't really do a lot menacing until the end of the film, uh, in in which you know not being able to read her expression and having her being very neutral kind of made her actions a little more dramatic. And I think it, I, I would probably agree that the, the flesh and blood face because of the, the the way that the actress emotes with this kind of perma sadness and everything she does makes everything a little bit unsettling. Yeah. For me, part of it is that. Right. Well, oh, go ahead, Nicole. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, in, in the scene we're talking about, she's wearing a dead girl's face. Yes. It is not the it's face she bad. was born with. <laughs> And that's what that's what throws me is that that the actress does a beautiful job of looking like she's somebody trying on a face. She's not quite sure how to face just like like how <laughs> how to how to have expressions and what this face is to her yet. And, and it's very unnerving to me. Um, her disfigured face for me was like, oh, that's cute, because it wasn't quite as alarming as I thought it would be. And the yeah. mask I found interesting because the mask kind of has this interesting continuity error where when it's off of her, you can see that it's like a thicker mask. But then when it's on her, it's like so thin that you can see every tiny movement of her face underneath the mask, even like her mouth perfectly underneath where like the lips of the mask are. So it, it it's it's unnerving in the sense that that it's very close to not having a mask i think in the grand scheme of masks but it's it's not as distressing to me as seeing her just perfectly normal for some reason and i think that's probably a uh great thing that this movie can pull off yeah so which is her real face nicole what do you mean by this I suppose I mean which which face is the closest to the real Christiane? Which one is the closest to to who she is as a person? I think that's hard because I think this is where the movie I kind of get some of the criticism levied against the movie when it first came out because we don't have any reference for Christiane before the accident. We don't right. know who she was. So what's I would have liked like five or ten minutes of before yeah. the accident. No, yeah, just letting us get. And I, I get, you know, this was a totally different time of filmmaking. Now we would have had flashbacks that would have shown us before, you know, the accident right. happened, which really wasn't a, a thing in filmmaking back then. I think that's a difficult question to answer because we don't know who she is aside from the sad girl who lost her face. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of difficult, especially because you have her her fiance, because for, for context for the listeners, after this accident, her father essentially fakes her death with a different girl's body. That way he can tell everybody she's died. Uh, they fake her obituary. I love the scene when he's coming out of the doc, the, the police station and the guy's like, oh, I thought it was my daughter. Oh, I'm so heartbroken. What could have happened to her? It's like we, you know, we, we know now that the, the doctor was playing up the whole situation. But like, come on, man. That guy just found out his daughter's dead in right. your mind. <laughs> Right. He thinks the professor has just identified his daughter. Yeah, and he's like, oh, but we're so worried about our daughter. And I love, I mean, I love the, the professor's line of like, to think I would be comforting you. Right, I know. Um, and in fact, early in this movie, I'm like, oh, this emotionally disconnected professor is going to do some naughty things. And that he does. Uh, but he gets rid of this other girl's body so he can try to graft her face onto uh, Christian's face. Uh, does not work. He seems to try this several times. And But Christian had 
a fiance. She had Jock. Um, Jock. And 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 I would have liked to have seen, like 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 you guys said, like five ten minutes at the beginning of the movie that even just gives me context as to what their relationship is like and and why he loves her the way he does. Like all, all we're told is like, oh, this is Jock. He's her fiance, and he's sad she died, and. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more of that. I think it'd make it more emotionally impactful if we were able to see some of their relationship and we don't get, we don't get any of that. Um, I will say Jock is like my, one of my yeah, favorite characters. Yeah, all we get is her prank reason. calling him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. She just starts crank calling him all the time because she wants to hear his voice, which is actually like existentially sad. Um, but eventually she does speak to him in like a weird unsettled. Why just not your regular voice? Why do you have to whisper Jock? I think it was her regular voice. She was just so... She was just so sad. Yeah, emotional <laughs> stress. All right, fair enough. Yeah, no, I. But in terms of like the real face, to get back to Nicole's question here, for me, I, I guess it's 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 the disfigured face, right? Like, at least that's the only one where we actually see her face. Um, though I though she kind of owns the mask at the end in a way because well we'll get yeah. to the end of the movie later on, but like the mask is something that she hasn't liked. And she seems to kind of own it toward the very end. That's yeah, true. she she embraces it. She doesn't it. seem to. Right. Right. So let's also talk about the movie's use of shadows. Uh, talk a little bit about this, Nicole, because I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, you know, most of the time when we do movie go around when we're not doing something that's aimed directly at kids or something that's kind of cheap and cheesy or what have you, something that's supposed to have some, some artistic heft to it. I'm usually looking for, you know, uh, symbols in the background or subtle themes or, um, I don't know, like sort of secondary mysteries under the main plot uh, sort of thing. And I I watched this movie twice and I was watching very closely for, you know, symbolism and whatnot. Like, are there a lot of extra reflective surfaces? Are there a, two of everything to reflect a dual identity? Are there what have... And no, no, I didn't <laughs> <laughs> really didn't find a lot of that in this movie but one thing i did notice is the way this movie is shot um the shadows are very sharp you know and there's especially this moment near the end uh when we when we get to the fate of louise um you see christian's shadow perfectly on the wall beside her um as if it's another person almost with her do you think the effect and of that so is enhanced was, by the black and white oh absolutely yeah absolutely and that probably has a lot to do with how it was shot and what sort of lighting they decided to use um you know up until oh, somewhere in the 1960s they had separate categories for cinematography at the oscars they had black and white cinematography and they had color cinematography and those were separate awards um so and then they merged it into one award eventually once black and white sort of fell out of favor entirely interesting and I didn't so, know that. but there were different approaches to how you shoot things depending on whether you were shooting them in black and white or in color so this movie was you know shot in black and white and so the set decoration was probably a certain way things were chosen for um the value of the colors they had rather than the actual hue, you know, like how dark of a shade something was or how light and the contrast. Um, so, I mean, that's something that I, that I did notice, especially on the second viewing is that the shadows are all very crisp and distinctive. It's never fuzzy. Interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't really take notice of that, but I did take notice of the, of the stark, blacks and whites particularly around things like her mask like you can see how john carpenter can see this and want to make the deathly pale expressionless mask that is you know mike myers um because it's unsettling in black and white because it just pops right whenever she's on screen with that mask particularly if it's dark your focus just focuses entirely to her um 
I think it's beautifully shot. I, I really enjoyed the set pieces as well. Like one of my favorite scenes is just this family crypt that uh, her fa- uh, uh, Christian's father has to hide bodies, basically, and and presumably <laughs> actual family members at some point as well. It seems like there's plenty of room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the graveyard scenes are beautifully shot. Like they're really pretty. Speaking of the the uh, her face seeming a little bit. Um, by today's standards, like, oh, okay, that's kind of cute. Uh, <laughs> when he was taking the body to the crypt and he like sets it down and it's like, it's kind of standing up on its own. It's like very obviously like a dummy of some kind. Uh, I found that very amusing, but to Nicole's point, I think there's a very interesting use of contrast. There's a shot that I loved uh, where it's when uh, they bring Edna I believe the girl who's going to look at the house when they bring mm-hmm. her there and it's uh, and, and um, they are walking up to the house and the doors open and the doctor is standing there and it's, you know, dark on all sides, but there's just this very clear right in the middle of the frame, uh, the doorway with the doctor illuminated there. And it was very like Guillermo del Toro. I really liked it. Yeah, I could see that. I could totally see that. The Doctor actually feels like something out of a Camel Totoro movie as a whole. A bit, yeah. Yeah, I would not be surprised if this weren't one of his favorite films. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Yeah, and, and I also want to talk more about that that cemetery scene that Nicole and I referenced as well, because um, it's there's an airplane that flies over, and Nicole put in our doc, you know, the, the, the symbolism of this airplane, that especially... Louise seems highly aware of it. In fact, in fact, I, I think she's the only one that sees it um, while the doctor is putting away the body inside the crypt. I, I'm kind of stumped yeah, this on this one. This is the second time. This is the second time they go right. to the cemetery. The first time is after they have, um, you know, after the <laughs> first, the first girl that they killed and then dumped her body in the river and then they claimed that same girl's body as Christian's um, you know after she's interred in the crypt and then they go get Edna and Edna dies and they're, they're going to just sort of add Edna to the crypt they're just going to sort of right. toss her on top of the last one um, you know as the professor as the, the doctor is dragging the body into the the crypt proper uh you can hear an airplane going over Mm -hmm. and louise looks up at it and there's it's clear that the the filmmaker is trying to tell us something because he spends you know several seconds looking straight at you know with the camera looking right at the plane so i don't know i mean i the the feeling that i got that it was sort of I don't know, it could go one of two ways. It could just be Louise wishing that that's where she was right then, rather than in a cemetery getting rid of the body of an innocent girl. Uh, we've um, all been there. <laughs> I can't tell you how many how times many t- I've been to the cemetery. Just <laughs> dumping a body. Dumping a body into the family crypt. Um, but I mean, it, I don't know. It could also be sort of a an eye of God kind of thing. That's what I thought you know, is like that it was, a, it was a third party that like, wasn't close enough to, to obviously see them, but it is like, there's other people around. Like, that's kind of what I got or like, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I took it too. Like with how secretive this all is, there's this risk that it, it it's, go- it's going to be exposed somehow. Yeah, I, I don't know, but or but Nicole, you were saying I, I interrupted you. I apologize. Like the, the eye of God, kind of uh-huh. like she's Louise doesn't seem to feel much, too much remorse for what she's doing, and she's the she's the DoorDash delivery driver for all these bodies for the <laughs> for the doctor. Like she is directly responsible for a lot of this happening. Right, and I mean she does a good job at finding these girls. She's looking for you know pretty students and. Like Edna in particular was ideal as she was a foreign student and didn't have any family or friends really in Paris. Except for one. Um, 
Apparently, she told Except everything. Except for one. <laughs> right. Um, but, I mean, she's she's very personable. She's very friendly with these girls. You know, she gets all buddy-buddy with them and then brings them home and she, where the professor can get the chloroform out and take them down to the basement. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I thought, I don't know. I had the, the impression that she, I don't know why I thought she would, but from the beginning of the movie with how worried she is dumping the body, I mean, the movie opens with her, with the body in the car, driving it to go dump it. Doing his dirty um, work. Like, he's not there with yeah, her. Yeah, she's doing the dirty work. No, he is He is not, you know, he's not doing the really uh, tricky bit of bringing these girls back to the house. And... Yeah, he's mostly just you know, doing from the, the face-off. Doing the face-off. Yeah, from the guilt she appeared... <laughs> let's throw face-off in there one more time. One more time. Um, she appears to be feeling a lot of guilt, but maybe it's just worry that she's going to be caught because she is just so good at being friendly toward these girls and bringing them home. She doesn't, it never looks like she's having a twinge of guilt until, yeah. you know, like the girls are unconscious and strapped down to the gurney downstairs. I never once felt like she was feeling guilty about any of it. She was on board for <laughs> all of it. You know, she believed in the doctor, believed that somehow he could do this and he should do this. And just, I, I think like she adds an extra level of creepiness to the whole movie because she's like legitimizing this insane doctor by agreeing with him. Well, she also legitimizes him by, by way of she is the, the proof that he can do it. Uh, you know, as it is revealed to us halfway through the film, she seems to have this obligation to him partly out of a debt of him replacing her face because yep. she wears a pearl choker to cover up the spot where you can see that she's wearing a dead person's face which well, and it was like all the way no, down no, no, on her no, no, neck no she's she's not she her face wasn't completely destroyed in the crash apparently it was partially damaged and he was able to repair it Oh, so it was the same. So it was the same crash as his as his daughter, as the daughter. Yeah. Oh, that so makes a lot more sense. In the same crash. I, di I didn't catch that, and I was thinking, like, how many people does this guy know that are disfiguring their faces and need this sort of operation? <laughs> that makes more no, sense. No, so she didn't have to have the the heterograph procedure. Right, which, by the way, is a risky click on Wikipedia because I wasn't entirely sure what that was and I was reading the, <laughs> the synopsis for this movie and I clicked that and I wish I hadn't. The more you know. Um, yeah, So, and I no, want to talk no. about that because... So, I'm going to say that like taking people's faces off is, is a distressing thing to me as if it shouldn't be for everybody. Um, but... This movie, there's something about this movie that out of all the movies we've watched for Movie Ghoul Round this year, and I think we can fairly say that two to three of them thus far are intended to be scary, right? Halloween, maybe Aramentari in a way. Um, what? Are you telling me the invitation is not meant to be scary? The invitation as well, right. Um, totally meant to be scary. So we have three movies that are meant to be scary, and for some reason, this one distressed me the most. And I think it's because... How on earth in 1960 did they get the scene where he takes off Edna's face through sensors? Because it is like four minutes long. It is so it is long. very long, guys. And it at first when he started doing it, because he outlines her face in a black marker, and then he starts going through with the scalpel. And I thought like, oh, they're going to show me like an incision, and then it's going to cut to him, and then it'll cut back, and he's like taking off a fake looking face. No! It shows you him ripping <laughs> off this face! And it is horrific, and I am still upset about it. And uh, yeah, that's why this was the scariest movie of mo Movie Ghoul Round for me, guys. This Movie Ghoul Round got me. Final week. <laughs> it's unsettling. It's unsettling. It's not as gross as it could be. I mean, when they remove 
when they remove the face, you get to, you see Edna underneath, and it's not just like a skull. It's just yeah, what you know, that? It's, it's pretty clearly just the actress's face with red stuff smeared on it. Yeah, you know, underneath. And that man, with how great that scene had been going, that took me entirely out of it. <laughs> and and what yeah. is up with that? Because. First of all, several questions regarding this procedure. Uh, firstly, <laughs> why do we need to target the girls with blue eyes? Because he's not replacing her eyes. Second of all, if you look at Edna after the procedure wearing this face wrap uh, before she yeah. either accidentally or purposely kills herself, and we can talk about that next, um, you can see like the skin around her eyes, her eyelashes. like It just looks there's still enough of the skin that you can see that shouldn't really be there if her face was taken off. Yeah. yeah. I think a little bit you're dealing with 1960s limitations. Of, of course. In that. Of course. Yeah. I think now, you know, with, with CGI and makeup effects and all these things we understand, you could make that face more disfigured and horrifying where, you know, at the time around the eyes, it, you can't do much. You just kind of got to leave it as is. I couldn't sit through this movie today if it was redone in modern special effects and had a four minute long scene of taking somebody's face off. I can guarantee you I would not sit through it. <laughs> For the nope. record, the Brett, Brett said the words, not me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, oh, we, might have to, we might have to bring that out at some point there. I don't know how we ever would, but I will. See. Wait, has uh, Brett never seen Face Off? No, I've seen Face Off. Oh, man, oh, right. I would hate to watch You're Face Off. You're making such a fuss about it. Wouldn't you? Yeah, no, don't, but like, don't do that to us. There's something about this movie that creeps me out more about it. But like, yeah, don't do Face Off to us. No, we'd hate that. <laughs> I absolutely hate that. We hate that, that so much. Yeah. I mean, um, it's yeah. I think this movie is creepy. I think this movie is atmospheric, which uh, makes it unsettling. Yeah, it's it's lent yeah, it's lent too well in that regard by the setting of the fact that this doctor is, you know, a fifteen minute bus or fifteen minute walk to a bus to get to Paris, right? And we don't really know how long that bus is, so he's enough removed in the French countryside from Paris that once they bring these girls out here to try to face off them, I'm just going to lean into it at this point. Uh, <laughs> it is really just unnerving because it's this old. French countryside home that obviously has a murder dungeon in the bottom of it, so it's got that going for it. Um, by the way, if you're building like a home or if you're a contractor and someone needs an operating room in the basement, good rule of thumb is not take that project. In any case, um, the whole entire setting is is very, very creepy. Even like the hospital, right? Like there's nothing not creepy about 1960s hospitals. They're even more sterile oh, and creepier than they are now. Yeah, that's just in general, I think. Yeah, but they're wearing like back. they're wearing like hospital robes that are somewhat creepier to me for some reason than modern hospital gowns. I don't know what it is, but the hospital itself offers a very atmospheric touch as well. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, Christian is wearing these gowns that look like patient robes, but were actually de designed by Givenchy. So they it's like she's she's wearing haute couture and yet it still looks like a hospital gown right um which i thought was an interesting choice to make although that was partially just the the fashion style of the time was to have these like a-line coat-like dresses that that women would wear that would make them look like tiny and waif-like which christian does sure i think that's very intentional so another I mean, she even walks you know this weird way that makes her look even more frail and bird-like it's like the way she she moved reminded me of like a ballet dancer you know she was going very slowly and she held her her arms out just a little bit away from her sides with her hands angled up you know, almost like she was like a little bird walking around slowly around her house. I, I almost felt more ghost-like from her. Um, just kind of yeah. this, this yeah, shell of a human in a way. Mm. Because she has, you know, her, her, her humanity is stripped from her, from her murderous father with, I guess, like, positive. <laughs> he, he wants to help her. 
He doesn't want to murder all these people, I suppose. Right. Um, but well, he's, I, don't, uh, he's, I don't think he cares. He does, you know, he's willing to do whatever he has to. Yeah, you, you, I guess it is like more procedural to him. But in any case, uh, he d- he he forces her to wear the mask inside, which is clearly a you problem um, because he doesn't want to see the face because she seems fine without it. Um, obviously, just disfigured and. I, I'm, not, I'm still not sure if I understand why we need to fake her death. Why can't she just be missing? That way, once you fix her, she can come back. Though I guess she'd have a different face. Well, Maybe that's why. It's so the police won't be poking around and asking intrusive questions. Yeah. But as we've learned in this movie, the police give up immediately, <laughs> including and especially <laughs> when they've put an innocent person's life at risk. Can we talk about poor Paulette? Uh, Paulette. Gets- oh, but before even before we get to poor Paulette, though, they find the body in the river and they're just like, oh, she drowned, but her face is gone with the edges cut cleanly, almost as if with a scalpel. Too right. bad she drowned. Yeah, a bird must have gotten to her face. I don't know. Yeah, yeah rats. It's rats. rats oh, it was rats. Face. Sure. But sure. just her face. Yep. <laughs> Right now now but also Paulette is a girl that gets brought in by the cops for shoplifting they send her on her way and then they bring her back when they realize they can use her on a sting operation to make her look like one of these girls that the doctor is trying to um, to pick up and and scalpel off. There is no reason that, like, we need you to dye your hair. It's like, why? (laughs) She yeah, they don't pick up specifically blonde girls. Yeah, that's a good point. I noticed. No, there was there's there's some darker girls in there. So in any case, they send her to his clinic with fake ailments that he very quickly susses out. But he then obviously calls up Luis because as soon as Paulette is walking home without being watched, you would think that the time at which your your bait would get picked up would be when they're leaving the hospital. Luis picks her up and goes on her way. It's really confusing. Right. Like right. Watch. Like she's not going to get taken yeah. by the doctor at the hospital. She's going to get taken when she leaves. Like that, the whole point of taking her to the hospital is to show him she exists, to give him the bait. Oh my god. Yeah. Right. And I mean the poor girl, that's that's what I found to be the most horrific moment of the movie is, you know, Jacques thinks that his obligation is done that she's left the hospital so he doesn't have to watch out for her anymore like she promised and the police think she's left the hospital so they're not bothering to go in there and poke around and look for her in the meantime she's in the basement of the hospital has just woken up realized she's strapped to the gurney and the doctor is going to do something horrible to her and no one is gonna come looking for her yeah, absolutely. Now yeah. we do have a a change of 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 uh, I guess it's really not a change of heart from from Christian because we never really know where she stands on this. We don't get enough from her in any way, shape, or form to know how she feels about her father killing people for her face. Yeah, but she just kind of goes. Think she likes it. I mean, I would imagine <laughs> so. And we do learn that at the end of the movie where she has this 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 moment of of release where she she lets. Paulette go, she stabs Luis, and she lets all the dogs go. By the way, some good doggos there at the end of the movie. That was a very, that was a totally fulfilling way for the mean doctor to go, right? All the do- all the dogs that he was experimenting on coming back and mauling him. Yeah, they deserved that. Wait, <laughs> in, they in deserved that? Yeah, or German Shepherd. Yeah. Oh, they were so sweet. Yeah. So yeah. he gets mauled by his own dogs, but but she lets everybody go. She lets everybody go, walks right over her dead father's body, doesn't seem to care. Oh, he's disfigured now in the face, and walks off into the moonlight with birds. Right. It's a hell of an yeah, ending. I mean, <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, it's it's supposed to be very poetic. You know, it, earlier in the movie, you've seen this painting of Christiane. Um, with like a dove on her hand and her wearing a pretty dress. And as she's walking out, you know, she has let not just all the dogs, but all these doves in a cage she's let out as well. And one of them has, you know, come to roost on her shoulder and she puts it on her hand. And so she's walking out into the night, you know, sort of wraith-like 
as she has uh, become a Disney princess that will go into the night. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All the dogs love her and the birds love her, but. Yes. Right. Shunned by all the people. Now, now, David, you put in our docket that the constant dog sounds, and maybe I didn't really take notice of them, but I guess there's just kind of dogs barking at random points, isn't there? There's dogs just barking throughout the entire movie. (laughs) And it it adds to the atmosphere. I like it. It just stood out to me. Sure. uh, That, like, sort of at times, the soundtrack sort of dips down and just, you know, you'll have them having a, a, uh, like the doctor and Louise having a conversation. There's just dogs barking in the background or as, uh, as, as Christiane is wandering around the house, there's just dogs barking far off. Cause it's like, you know, when we hear dogs barking, things feel wrong. Like there's something going on. That dog is barking for a reason. Something bad's happening. Right. Right. Now, now do we ever learn why, he's experimenting on the dogs like we very briefly see an obscured shot of him animal testing yeah he's he's transferring there's one shot of him with a a german shepherd that has this he did like a big patch of fur that's like a different yeah from a different dog on its side yeah oh no yeah, but, but I mean, he was experimenting on those dogs. Well, I knew that. I just yeah, wasn't that's sure. what they were for. Right. I just, I just, I didn't realize fully that he was testing the skin grafts on the. Oh my god, that makes more sense now. Um, yeah. That's even <laughs> better that they maul him. And there's some good doggos in there too. He's got like some cocker spaniels. Like it's not just like a bunch of German it's, shepherds and like it's pitbulls. a vast breed of dogs. Yeah, he definitely yeah, he has just myriad. Well, he takes what the, he can get from the dog catcher. Yeah, right. the dog catcher says like. People buy puppies, and then when the puppies grow up, they yeah, don't want to raise them anymore. What was well, that? And that's, I mean, that kind of does happen. I know people like drop yeah, off sure animals, does. and I guess it does. You're right, but um, yeah, it's why around Easter there's a big problem with like bunnies because people get little bunnies for uh, their kids, and then realize, oh, we don't want to raise a bunny. Yeah, or dogs in January. <laughs> if you ever want a purebred dog without having to pay for it, just go to a shelter in January. Um, so. Oh. It's true. But I mean, yeah. I noticed the noises too, though. Um, the first time the the Dr. Genessier comes home, as soon as he opens the garage doors to the house, you hear this, this cacophony of barking dogs. And then as he goes further into the house, like each door he goes through and closes, the barking gets a little quieter and then a little quieter and a little quieter until he gets into the main house where Christiane is, and she's completely cut off from the sounds of the barking. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of, I think it really c- contributes to the atmosphere of isolation around Christiane, is that she mm-hmm. is, you know, she's cut off from the outside world completely where she is. Yeah, she is removed entirely. And I think the music does a great job right. of that and as well. And almost removed from humanity. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, yeah. And the music in this film uh, is beautifully... I, I found the CD on Spotify, which I was excited about, because it's beautifully orchestrated. This is a really, really nice soundtrack. Um, and well, it's Maurice Jarre, so he's... Now, who is... Pretty well-known French is pretty well-known. movie composer. Yeah, it's it's absolutely lovely. Well, he lovely. did Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, wow, he's, okay. He did The Fifth Element. He did, you know, various other things. Wow, okay. Yeah, it's it's a stunning soundtrack. Um, I really, really enjoyed it, so I'm excited that I can actually stream it. Um, but it does, it adds to the, there's this, you know, slow build to the soundtrack in these small waves where it really adds to the atmosphere when... Um, you know, especially when she's wandering around the house and you see, you know, Christiane mm. trying to, I guess, escape at the end, but I guess escape isn't necessarily the right word. It's beautifully orchestrated. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, speaking, Christiane, why does she show her unmasked face to Edna? Edna is the second murder we see in the movie. Um, the one that I read online that some people thought she killed herself. I think she just kind of fell out of a window. Oh, uh, I think she killed herself. It's a pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty high window to fall out of. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, yeah, maybe what was she, she, what was she doing? Trying to see something <laughs> on the side of the building? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you hear her scream, and you must imagine... I When I heard her scream, I thought it was because she saw herself. Even though we're told there's no mirrors in the house, except we do see a mirror later on. Well, well but um, Christiane says like she can see herself... Sure. ...in various places. Right. So, like, 
Uh, yeah, I guess she does kill herself. But in any case, why does she show? Uh, why is why is she shown uh, Christian's face? This is a question from Nicole. Yeah, and I'm asking because uh, I, I I genuinely couldn't quite figure it out. You know, she takes her mask off and then goes over to Edna, who is unconscious and awaiting surgery, and she like reaches out and touches Edna's face, like, oh, you know, here's here's the face I am going to receive. And then she, when she sees that Edna's waking up, she still stands there and waits and lets Edna see her. I yeah, think I they did it because think... it's the most opportune moment to show her spooky face for one time in the movie. <laughs> that might yeah, be all just... it is, given the lack of depth in certain parts of this movie. It's just creepiness, you know? It's just creepiness. You know how it'd be. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's an interesting scene, right? Because I thought that she'd let Edna go. I thought that when she was coming over to see Edna, that that might be the breaking point of which she releases somebody. But she lets Edna die. So... Christian, kind of complicit in this a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know, though. It's a really good question. And if we have viewers end up watching the movie, I'd love to get thoughts from all these discussion topics as well. Um, but I, it might just be the shower face because it's the only time we see the face. We only see the disfigured face for one shot of this movie, unless I'm mistaken. No, I th- that's, that's it. That's the only time you fully see Christian's face. I think it's. You know, Christian, I think there's probably, like I said, I, I wish we did something from before the accident to get some idea of what she was like as a person before this. Mm-hmm. But I think the first the first time her father attempts the surgery with uh, Simone Tissot, I think she's eager to try to get her face repaired and doesn't really think about the consequences to other people. And the second time with Edna, I think it's partly out of a desire to get her face fixed, but also partly sort of duty to her father, because her father is just obsessed with perfecting his procedure and getting it to work and fixing her face. And he feels guilty because he was the one driving the car. But the third time when Paulette shows up, she's the one that Christian lets go. And I think... It, and it's right before Christiane, you know, spoiler alert, kills Louise. Um, and I think Christiane is finally kind of just can't can't live with it anymore. I can't live with somebody else dying to try to fix her face, which she's lost faith is ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. And right. so I think she just kind of loses herself completely and, and kind of abandons her humanity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a there's definitely a breaking point for her. Yeah, absolutely. How many other people have to suffer for her? Right. And she does note at some point that, especially after the face doesn't work, because what ends up happening is she does get Edna's face. She looks beautiful, albeit kind of creepy, apparently, is what the consensus we've come to. Um, <laughs> and, and it starts to, almost predictably, because you're putting a dead person's face on your face, fall apart it starts to um like almost like rot and deteriorate um which i found particularly fascinating because that we have success cases nowadays of this actually happening we have face transplants today that work um they don't right. they don't they don't look as pretty um you're not going to look perfectly human afterward like she does for a short time but the t- technology is finally right. there um but in any case she ends up having to get Edna's face removed again. And that's when she says to her father, you know, or says to Luis, rather, I, I'm just his experiment. Um, she seems to care less at that point about actually getting her face back. Right. And she begs Luis to kill her. She begs Luis to get, you know, the drugs that her father uses to euthanize the dogs when he's done experimenting on them. Right. Right. And to put her out of her misery. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, she's creepy. She's creepy. Uh, how yeah. does this movie fit in with other creepy movies, though, um, from 1960? So we're looking at like Psycho, Peeping Tom, that sort of stuff. Uh, this is, I I would argue, kind of the birth this- of a genre in a way. Not that we didn't have horror movies prior, but that it's starting to become the horror movie we might know and love today. Well, I mean, this is one 
there's there's sort of a subgenre of horror, I would say, where the the horror isn't necessarily uh you know, it's not necessarily gross, it's not necessarily overly bloody, but it's just deeply unsettling. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's these horror movies that are kind of artsy but unsettling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's the 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 horror is more in kind of what's being done in a philosophical sense, I guess if that makes if that makes sense. No, sure, it's, sure. It's more psychologically horrifying yes. than anything. Like, right, and obviously like like getting psycho, your face pulled right. off. Right, getting yeah, getting your face pulled yeah. off is, is horrifying in a in a very physical real sense, but there's also I don't know this whole uh, other thing surrounding it where it's you know, it's 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 Christiane's psychological breakdown over what's happened to her and what's happening to other girls and how much she can take and what's happening to these other girls and it, all that's loaded into that. It just it it kind of works into your brain. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking about these other movies. I've only ever seen a couple of them. Um, I've never seen Peeping Tom. Um, but I am looking at a list right now of these early 60s films like Psycho, The Birds, a lot of Hitchcock films, um, Village of the Damned, Night of the Living Dead. That's late 60s. But in any case, um, I think of these movies and I and I think of them as the the films that kind of kicked off a lot of the tropes that I can now roll my eyes at because they were not tropes at the time. Like it is a lot creepier in this movie that he does have his underground operating room in his own home. Whereas that is somewhat expected of your creepy doctor nowadays. Um, so I think there's a piece to this where it, it all feels so new. And, and I think that's, what's exciting about the movies that you reference here as well, Nicole, that it's just, there's something about it that it's going into these places that are going to be very well traveled very soon. Right. And I mean, these were places that made people very uncomfortable you know village of the damned is about a you know this whole village that loses several hours of time and then several months later it's discovered that all the women of childbearing age are pregnant and they all give birth at the same time to these very unnatural children and you know that's that's a concept that a lot of people were not comfortable with because it you know they had to sort of they they glance over it in the film, but uh, you know that you have to sit with the concept of what happened to all these women while they were sex. unconscious. Well, yeah, yeah, extramarital sex or you know, yeah, things like that. Um, you know, Psycho was considered pretty lurid for its time, even though you don't actually see a whole lot of no nudity, uh, grotesquery. Um, but I mean, you know, it it hinted at an edible complex and uh, you know this weird obsessiveness and uh, peeping Tom uh, has to do with this photographer who was who has this complex because his father photographed him incessantly as a child as like this psychological experiment and he's very fragile mentally and I mean that was a movie um, that almost ruined the filmmaker's career entirely. Uh, it was Michael Powell in Britain. Um, and I, I hope we get to do that sometime. We should, we should definitely watch that. Um, but I mean, this was this whole sort of theater of the psychologically unsettling. And it was a new, I think, maybe it came with the rise of, of popularity of psychotherapy and sort of the... sure the sort of beat culture of the late fifties and sixties where people were exploring who they were as people. And, yeah, you know, and, and filmmaking was evolving in a big way. Th- oh, absolutely. Especially in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, have somebody I, like, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock making these movies who prior earlier that, you know, earlier in the previous decade was making stuff, you know, like like Rear Window, for instance, it's I, that was the early fifties, and that was right. not a horror film, but it but it was you know he was he was the acclaimed director of the time, working with the best of the best, you know, um, continually Jimmy Stewart, and uh, the fact that he was then jumping on that train and making things like Psycho and the Birds probably led, led yeah. credence to a genre that was growing. 
it's it's easy now to look back and be like, oh, okay, this movie is really tropey, or these quote unquote special effects don't look very good. But there's part of me that kind of wishes like I could I could go back in time and live in this time and have no knowledge of movies as they are today. And just like, how would these movies land on me now? Like yeah. then, you know, when, when everything is so yeah. different, you know, what if when these movies were, some of them were cutting edge for the time in, in so many ways. And I think we lose a little bit of that watching them now. You know, some of it still stands yeah. up, but. I think the impact that it had isn't quite the same. No, I mean, we expect things to look as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's if somebody's skin gets peeled back in a horror movie, we expect to see like the muscles and the fascia and the tendons and the blood. And we expect to see every little detail. And back then, people, not so much. You know, it was it was okay if you pulled something off and it was sort of blank, but just bloody underneath, you know, they didn't Mm -hmm. question that quite as much at that point. I mean, that surgical scene was shocking for its time, especially because they, they, it has this air of realism to it because of how intense, how intensely the doctor is concentrating, like on the soundtrack, you, you hear him breathing, very deeply right like when he's talking to louise his voice is fairly quiet but you hear his breathing very loudly mm-hmm. and um you know they're going slowly around the face they're putting forceps and clamps around every couple inches as very they go surgical, in a very yeah. yeah very surgical very methodical they pull it up very carefully and you know there were supposedly this is this is an apocryphal story i couldn't confirm it um but supposedly when this was shown in scotland at some sort of uh, festival in edinburgh uh, seven people fainted during <laughs> right, the surgical about that. scene yeah. they, I love they pulled the face like off and the director was supposed to have said uh this is why scottish men wear skirts <laughs> so, <laughs> He was, oh, I was feeling a little queasy um, myself during that scene. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is just... And you were on one side or the other in 1960. You either thought this was brilliant and ahead of its time, or you were both angry at the content of the movie and the fact that the director that you enjoyed had, in your opinion, stooped as low as to make a movie like this. Right, yeah. It's, it's gross. It's vulgar. It's just trying too hard to be shocking and appeal to the lowest common denominator kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How cute. But, you know, I'm discovering in in the last, I don't know, I would say in the last 10 years or so, I've really taken like a, a deeper dive into horror at all levels and discovering that there is so much more to it. You know, even the the cheapy stuff can have a lot to say. You know, like Reanimator is super low budget, but it it's got stuff on its mind. You know, For sure. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Night of the Living Dead, super low budget, it's got a lot of things to say. You know, as shocking and lurid as it was for its time, um, there's a lot of subtext. You know, the horror is very political and it gets away with it because people dismiss it right so you know that's that's why i I think i particularly like bringing new horror movies to you guys even though i'm i'm trying to take it easy on david because he's not such a (laughs) a big fan oh i'm watching them at my own house it's fine (laughs) okay (laughs) i didn't say i wasn't a fan oh all right yeah they're not your favorite a little a little more it's susceptible to it's, them <laughs> it's not my preferred genre okay yeah yeah definitely so i i think yeah i think there's a special place in history for these films that did have these incendiary rollouts right um because this is now a film of course as nicole said at the top of the show not only is it considered a classic of um of the genre but i watched the remastered criterion collection version of this movie and, and it looks beautiful by the way but like oh it looks so good yeah, yeah. um 
Yeah. So it this holds a very special place in uh, the genre. And I think that is a really perfect place to wrap up as we hit exactly an hour. I do want to say, because I found this, this is entirely anecdotal and interesting to me, um, that the crypt scene, which remains my favorite scene in the movie because I just love the imagery of the graveyard. Um, at first, I was a little confused because I, I guess... I'm going to explain kind of how crypts work in a way because I didn't know this until very recently, but I didn't know that you could like drop stuff down the bottom, that that's the point of the crypt. Like, cause I learned this in new Orleans recently when I was there touring cemetery number one, which is their above ground cemetery. And what they'll do, particularly in Creole culture is they'll lock it for one year and they don't want to touch that thing for a year. And then after a year, they'll open it up and they'll basically push the bodies to the very back of the crypt where there's a hole and all the bodies will fall down into the hole. And that's how you can bury a family of, you know, 50 people's worth of bones. Did you not notice either? So, okay. No. Okay. I'm cool. I'm glad this is interesting to someone else. I was worried I would say this and everyone would be like, yeah, of course. Um, But that's why when you go up to these crypts in New Orleans, They'll say, yeah, there's 50 people from this family in this tiny crypt because they're not stacked up in there or even um, in urns. They push the bones. They're not like each in their own niche. Right. They're just tossed in a pile. They push the bones to the saying. very, very back the with this long, like 20 foot pole. <laughs> and they do it to this day in New Orleans, wow. where in New Orleans, they will always open it up one year after the fact. So there's these big, giant, like underground, like caves full of bones. So I assume that hmm. it's similar in Europe, and that might be the reason that he had kind of his little underground uh, his murder hole. hole. Yeah. Gross! So, <laughs> the more you know. Uh, all right, guys, we'll wrap up the show. Uh, first of all, next week, again, you did this to us. Sh- uh, look at the show notes. They'll tell you what that's going to be, and I announced it earlier on the program as well. We don't currently know what it is going to be, but uh, I do want to read an email. <laughs> we got an email uh, sub- we got an email from your mom. Yes. Hey, hey, I will say she's not the first. At least she's not the first person to write in. Right. We've had other emails and other Facebook comments true. and stuff. So that's why I feel OK reading this. And I, be- I seem to recall you specifically asked your mom to write in and weigh in. on. I this. think I might have. And I think she recently listened to the episode. And that's why <laughs> this is now coming in. So um Subject line, stalker mom, Brett, Nicole, and David. Okay, I will attempt to justify (laughs) my stalker mom behavior following my child to school on his bike. Elementary school, Uh, only child, Las Vegas. This was in response to eighth grade, right? Yes, this was in response to eighth grade where I outed my mom for stalking me as as the girl does. Okay, start over. Sorry. So I will attempt to justify my stalker mom behavior following my child to school on his bike. Elementary school, only child, Las Vegas, older mom than most. Hence, helicopter mom. I'm sure there's much more, but too embarrassing for Brett. That's nice. Thanks, mom. Love all of you every week and look forward to listening. You are my favorite drive time, especially when Nicole corrects Brett on his grammar or pronunciation. Keep them coming. I'm your biggest fan. Thanks, mom. I forget your mom listens to this show and the things I say on here. Thank you, Thank you, Mrs. Brett's mom. Thank you, Mrs. Brett's mom. Uh, Thanks, mom, for the email. If you would like to do the same, hi at mgrpodcast.com. You don't have to be related to us to write in. In fact, we prefer it. But nonetheless, thank you, mom. Uh, Let's go around the table, see where we can find everybody online. Nicole, where are you at? I have a letterboxed account at Nicole underscore Davis, and I watch over our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. Very good. And what about you, David? Uh, you can find me around the internet under the username Davluz. That's D-A-V-L-U-Z. Twitter and Instagram. Find me there. I'm also on Brokebot Mountain with Phil Rude. And you can find me probably by the time this comes out still probably on America's Next Top Podcaster. So tune in to find out. Very, very good. Check it out. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find all of these links and more at social.mgrpodcast.com. And again, if you'd like to vote on the You Did This To Us on our Facebook or our Twitter or mgrpodcast.com slash You Did This To Us. Uh, Go on over there if you'd like to check that out. Finally, a call to action. I do this every week, but I'm going to push it even harder on you. I'm going to guilt trip you, audience. This is a free medium 
and how you can pay us back for the hours of enjoyment that you get listening to our show. I know you listen to it the second it comes in your feed, and it's the first thing you do every morning when you wake up. Uh, You can rate the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, rather. Go on over there, leave a review, let us know what you think of the program, and go ahead and do that so we can get more people into this wonderful fold. We are calling upon you if you're listening on an iPhone right now. It takes two seconds. Open up the app. It's built into your phone. But there we go. I'll get off my high horse for that. We appreciate you listening, and thank you if you decide to go ahead and rate and subscribe. They'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We'll be back next week with You Did This To Us, and it's the end of Movie Ghoul Round. I feel like I should announce that, too. Second year movie go round, guys. Are we are we happy with movie go round? Absolutely. Yes. We'll bring it back again next year. If you have any thoughts for this sort of thing that we can do, uh, whether it be for different holidays or what you'd like to see next year for movie go round, please let us know again at our email. We'll see you next week. <laughs>